Welcome to Seismic Airwaves, a podcast about disasters centered on earthquakes based in Portland, Oregon. I'm your host, Sabina Roan. In the middle of, of a, any kind of a, a stressful situation, we tend to judge ourselves harshly and judge other people harshly and say, look, I'm doing the best I can. And other people are doing the best they can. And I may not necessarily agree with what you're doing or necessarily approve of what you're doing, but I honor who you are. And I'm just trying to do that. For this episode, I'm talking with Liz Reardon. Liz works with Mental Health First Aid, an international organization aimed to train as many people as possible to provide initial help and support to those around us developing mental health, substance use, or any other sort of crisis. They really want to get everyone across the globe as comfortable supporting those around us going through mental health issues as we are folding clothes or brushing teeth or something. When mass trauma, a disruptive and damaging crisis that many people go through together, is involved, the skills of supporting people going through crisis take on a whole new dynamic. In Portland, they say first responders won't reach all neighborhoods until two weeks after a major earthquake. While in terms of the pandemic and in terms of mental health, there's even more uncertainty about when and even if people get professional care they need. To clarify something that was a little confusing to me at first, mental health first aid is a thing, an idea, and also the name of the organization where Liz is a trainer. My conversation with Liz wove in and out of the elements of mental health in general and about what the training from this organization is. Yeah, so I was so excited you were open to talking because (laughs) that idea of mental health first aid is just so important. And I feel like there's a really generally more a focus on physical aspect of especially with disasters and also physical health in general. But mental health is just as important as physical health. Absolutely. You know, what's interesting, the Red Cross has something called psychological first aid that you may have heard of. That's usually for first responders to help people in the middle of a particular disaster. Oh, interesting. So it's very disaster oriented and Mm -hmm. a lot of it is for people who are working as first responders. And mental health first aid is more of a, I don't know, it's more of a resiliency program. So what it, it started back in 2001 in Australia. And interestingly enough, the woman who started it, Betty Kitchener, is a nurse, an RN, who has a lived experience of depression. And she was hospitalized for that. And then when she tried to come back to work, the system wasn't going to let her do it because they didn't want somebody with mental health problems dealing with patients. Oh. So yeah, that, but again, that was, that was a while ago. So Betty is also an instructor in CPR and first aid. So she's very familiar with that. So the story goes that she and her husband, Tony Jorm, who's a researcher at the University of Melbourne, were walking on the beach because there are beaches in Australia. And she said, wouldn't it be great if somehow I could take, we had a first aid or CPR course for mental illnesses. So it was like, yeah, she started in the Australian outback in 2001. And it's now up to 26 countries. Um, I started with the program in 2008 and, you know, we had no idea whether it was going to go anywhere. It's now two and a half million people. 
Michelle Obama is a first dater. Jill Biden is a first dater. So it's, it's really done a lot. And now we've got programs for the general public, but also been working with cops and firefighters and teachers and people in healthcare situations, healthcare organizations. And, you know, it's, it's, and also for different populations, there's a whole program in Spanish, Spanish language, working with elders, working with faith-based communities, working with rural communities. So now it's just expanded. And the, the focus, because I call it resiliency, but it's basically how you doing. That's all, you know, you look at, because, because it's not just about mental illnesses, it's how we're doing. And a lot of times people are going through a hard time. It doesn't necessarily get to the level of a mental illness, but it teaches people not to be afraid of things and be willing to reach out to another person and say, are you okay? Which, you know, that, that can help anywhere. So what we do, I teach people to teach an eight hour course, a general eight hour course. And what people learn to do is recognize what, you know, I call it spidey sense, essentially is something going on. Uh, is somebody okay? And then you learn to assess, you, you ask some questions to assess whether they're at risk of suicide or harm, because we want to make sure people are, you know, are safe. And then we learn to listen to them non-judgmentally, get out of your own way and listen and hear what the person's going through. And then you learn enough to give somebody reassurance. You know, you're, I'm with you, you know, because we know, especially when we're going through a disaster, coming to somebody and say, everything's going to be fine is not helpful. Let's just put it that way. And it, sometimes it can be hurtful. So what we're saying is, hey, you know what? We're all going through stuff. I'm here for you. And also knowing some information, here's some places that can help you. And then knowing where you can encourage, okay, there are professionals who can help you. But also we want to encourage self-help and other support strategies. So what can you do for you to maintain your resiliency and help yourself heal and and get better. And that's it. It's called algae. After I did, I don't have my koala with me, but our little, our little mascot is a little stuffed koala named algae. It's not the, 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 the scum you find on ponds, but it's assess for risk of suicide or harm. A, L, listen, not judgmentally. G, give reassurance and information. And E, encourage appropriate professional help. And the last D is encourage self-help and all their support strategies. So we, we have people kind of learning that like when you learn first aid or CPR, you learn like ABC or compressions or whatever you do. So it's just something that's a little mnemonic that helps people think about, okay, you know, I don't have to do all this in order, but here's some ways I can think about helping somebody. So it's, it's really, it's made a difference for a lot of people. I asked Liz if the program was like triage, directing people to the right type of care for the situation they were in. I hear you. Well, you know, we're not asking people to triage. We're not asking people to do anything more than be a friend. Um, we do teach this to first responders and cops and uh, people in the military. But we always say is you do your job. You know, we're not teaching other people to do your job. If your job is to triage, if your job is to make a determination about dangerousness, yeah, you do that. But as a first aider, it's just me. Um, what I'm trying to first do, I guess what you're saying in triage is, hmm, is somebody okay? Am I worried about this? Am I concerned? So when to do this, the eight-hour course teaches people a little bit about what you might notice if somebody's starting to develop a problem. 
you know, what might they be behaving like? What might they be thinking? Um, you know, we talk about signs or symptoms. What might you notice? And what might the person be feeling? And we're not asking people to diagnose. We're just trying to say, huh, this is a little out of character for you, or this is a little different. I just want to make sure you're all right. And so you do that with anybody, regardless of whether you have a mental illness or whether you're just sitting here at home under a quarantine and feeling like, oh man, I'm all by myself. So it's, it's something that I think recognizes our emotional state as well as our physical state. And it, it, it's made a difference for a lot of people. Wow. Yeah, it's very cool. But I do say so myself. I've been doing it, I've been doing it for 12 years. It's, it's also interesting in that there, you, know, you, you asked about the types of populations and people that we help. And literally, I, when I think about the, the, the years I've gone back and gone for like, it's usually a five day where I teach people how to teach this. I have been in the Navajo Nation. I've been uh, on army bases. I've been in a lot of schools. Uh, college campuses, faith communities, police. I was had a great, great, great group in the Philadelphia Fire Academy. They were awesome. <laughs> we had a great time, uh, you know, and have been, I think the only states I haven't been to to train are Alaska and North Dakota and Arkansas. I've been everywhere else. Wow. Yeah, everywhere. So <laughs> to meet people from all over and, you know, everybody's got their cultural things, which is really kind of, you know, interesting, but also everybody's kind of in the same place because people are human beings. And even I might have a, a job as a teacher or I might have a job as a firefighter. I still go home at night. So we also find that cops, firefighters, teachers, uh, all, all these folks have a high rate of mental, of stress in their own jobs. So, and especially veterans working with active military and vets. So it's not just about the people you take care of. It's about how can I take care of myself? And especially with officers, how can I support my brother and sister officers or first responders? Cause they're going to be in harm's way too. So it really builds people up. It's kind of cool. It sounds to me like it's not like maybe one reason it has such an incredibly far reach is because yeah. it's not like dictating how to do the things is right. What I'm hearing. It's just like, okay, check in, which with people yeah. around you, no matter what form, yeah. you know, that looks different to different people, but yeah. It, and the other piece is that it really empowers folks. Um, I mean, I have no clinical training. My background, I'm, I have a master's in public health and I'm a recovering bureaucrat. So, I mean, I am not, I'm not personally a person who has been trained as a clinician, um, but I've got lived experience and I've been a family member. So for me, my truth is just as important as the person who is um, a psychiatrist with a million de degrees, you know, million years of experience. And I think that's the beauty of this. You don't have to be a clinician. In fact, some of the best people I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of, there's this one guy who teaches at the Paul, was it Paul? Oh God. Who's the guy who does the, the shampoo? <laughs> he teaches at a beauty school and I'm completely. Oh, Paul Mitchell? Paul Mitchell. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. You can tell I've been away from having my hair done. But anyway, he, he teaches at the Paul Mitchell Beauty Academy. And if you become, go through that, you learn mental health first aid. 
Yeah, because you're thinking of it. You're standing there. You've got your hands in somebody's hair. You're talking to people. And, you know, you think, especially we have a program for youth, people who work with teens. You're getting somebody's hair done for prom. Might be a good time to have a chat. <laughs> it's it's really yeah things you never think about bartenders are all over this you know and uh you know meals on wheels people who deliver for food for elders how can you say you know here's your lunch how you doing um correctional officers who work in maximum security prisons it's just it's amazing what it does is it um it helps us get beyond the term stigma. I'm, I'm sure I'm certain you're, you're familiar with that, which has been a huge barrier for people getting help because of this stigma thing. And I, when I'm teaching the class, I ask people, what, you know, what do you think stigma is? Tell me what you think it is. And a number of years ago, I was in a class and I had an older lady who had really thick Coke bottle glasses on. She raised her hand. She said, you know, I have a stigmatism. I was like, great, thank you for sharing. <laughs> she said, you know, when you have astigmatism, everything's distorted. You don't see things the way you are. And that's why I have to wear these glasses. But isn't that what stigma does to us? We don't see people who they, as who they really are. We see the diagnosis, we see the behavior, we don't see the person. And isn't that what stigma does? And I thought that is the best definition of stigma I've ever heard. <laughs> Because we don't see people for who they are. We're, we're seeing the other, we're seeing the label. And I think that also understanding more about mental illnesses and, you know, really sort of calling out stigma is another thing that really, really helps folks. Because our culture still make, turns this into a joke. And, and also, also either it's a joke or you're afraid, you're scared. And if I have a mental illness, I'm 10 times more likely to be a victim of a crime than a perpetrator. You know, so it's changing, it's changing the conversation too, which is really important. I asked Liz to walk through an example of the approach she trains on. All right. Well, let me, all right. Well, here's one we use sometimes. Okay. okay. Um, and this is fairly classic. Uh, you're in, you know, you've got a coworker, you work in an office and, and well, this is back in the day when people worked in offices and you know, went out on Friday nights, but assume this is like prior to March. And, you know, everybody goes out after work on Friday and, you know, has happy hour and has a great time. But you notice one of your, your coworkers who's a friend is kind of hanging out there longer and you're noticing they're drinking a little bit. They're, 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 they're not talking to anybody and they're isolating and you are, are working with this person and you've got a major deadline for project coming up and that person is just not following through. And you're getting more and more frustrated. And then finally, the person like calls you up one night and says, you know, I just can't stand the pressure here at work. I just want to quit. So you're like, great, you know, I've got to, what's going to happen here? So what people tend to like to do, tend to just jump on is the person's drinking is really what's causing all the problem. We got to get this person to stop drinking, which probably might be, but it could be a bunch of other things. So a lot of times what you can say is, oh man, you said you wanted to, you want to quit because you can't take the pressure. What's that about? Tell me more versus assuming I know what's going on. Mm. That's the assessed risk of suicide harm. Because the other thing is, um, you know, what if we do go out and I do notice that you might 
pass out or you might, you know, have a, you might uh, really be under the influence. What can I do to make sure you're safe? But, you know, see, opening up that conversation, trying to make the person feel that I care about you. This is why I'm saying what I'm saying to you. And maybe the person does, you know, get under the influence and you do have to be there and help that person through that crisis. So, you know, if they pass out, we learn to put them in the, what we call recovery position. So if they throw up, it's not going to, they're not going to aspirate. We also learn to support them that, you know, maybe you're coming into the office the next Monday and everybody knows what happened and you're feeling terrible and you're embarrassed and you're feeling some shame. How do you listen non-judgmentally? How do you understand that, hey, you know, not everybody who tries to quit a habit, whatever it is, uh, smoking or, you know, weight loss or drinking, does it on the first try. People can try a number of times and, you know, there's something called stages of change. And I'm going to support you where you're at right now. And yes, recovery is possible. I'm going to give you hope for recovery. And, you know, I could say, hey, you know, I do know of there, there's some docs who can help you or maybe our EAP. But the other piece is I'm going to support you in doing what you're, um, I'm trying to think, I'm going through this in my head, is, uh, you know, your self-help and other support strategies. If you want to just try cutting down on your drinking, I can help you with that. You know, maybe we'll, we won't go out to happy hour. We'll go take a walk together, you know? So it's, it's, it's kind of genuine. It's, it's basically kind of individual. It's not a formula, but that kind of shows how it's going. It's not the, all right, you're an alcoholic, you're drinking too much. I'm not going to talk to you until you stop your behavior. That's really annoying me. We find out that doesn't help the person. A lot of times when we talk about behavior knows that, you know, they probably should be changing, but it's hard. So we're there to support people from where they are, but also making sure, okay, we want to make sure you're safe. That, that, that cover the waterfront. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. But that's just one. Yeah. That, yeah. That was helpful for me to hear. How do you see the pandemic playing into all of these things? All of these things. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it's, it's ironic, very sadly ironic that mental health for state has grown because of, or actually as a response to some mass trauma. Um, we have a very wonderful program that, that's working for adults who are working with, with youth. And the funding from that came as a response to the shootings in Newtown, Connecticut. We literally had just started the program the 1st of January, uh, 1st of December. Two weeks later, the shootings happened. Um, over the next couple of weeks, the woman who's in charge of the National Council for Behavioral Health which sponsors mental, sponsors mental Health First Aid. Good friend of Joe Biden told him about the program. Joe Biden got President Obama's ear and that made it into the first bill to respond to the shootings. And what I have heard, I, I, I haven't confirmed it yet, but Mental Health First Aid funding for that was one of the few things that the NRA and the anti-gun people could agree on. So, so anyway, right now, communities, Congress has been funding since 20, what, 2013, 20, roughly $20 million a year for communities to grow mental health first aid to help their communities respond to things like, you know, it's not just school shootings. You know, we, we know that our young people are dying by suicide in our high schools and people don't know what to do. Uh, you know, we've had the, we've had 
I was on, I was on an army base when there was a shooting. I was teaching there at the time. You know, there's just a lot going on. So with the pandemic, part of it is, yep, you know, it can be a response to an emergency and a trauma situation. But at the same time, it's just kind of teaching us that number one, self-care is not selfish. So I can't help you as a first aider. I can't reach out to you unless I'm in a fairly okay place myself. So it really focuses on self-care. Like, what am I going to do? Who can I talk to? Um, it also, I think, is exacerbating for people who have existing mental illnesses. If I have obsessive uh, compulsive disorder, and one of the things I need to do to keep my anxiety at bay is to wash my hands a lot. Um, or if I am isolated already because of depression, or I'm isolated because I might have a psychotic disorder, or I'm feeling a lot of stress and my go-to is to use or to drink. Those are things that can really make my life really, it can make me in, in worse shape. So I think part of it is having people who understand that these situations for people with existing mental illnesses can actually be a real pressure to understand that trauma does have a lot to do with how mental illnesses start, but also understanding we're all people and let's just help each other. And are, are you okay? I just want to check in. And it's just, I think, I think what you're saying is about it, which makes so much sense, is just knowing I've got an opening and a little outline of something to use so I can do something. Because it's like, what do I do? And just, yeah, just knowing it's okay to say, are you all right? Yeah, you know, and then go from there. You really can. But I think with the pandemic, I think the irony, though, of course, is that I travel over the country doing training, and I can't do that right now. So mental health first aid is now actually actively transitioning into an online, an online available class. So that's happening literally right now. So I'm going to be learning to or working to do my training, what I can do with people remotely which is gonna be interesting, but also mental health first aid is gonna have a remote option. So you can do some of the course yourself, self-directed online, and then have like a Zoom thing like you and I are having, where you have a class of maybe some people and you can talk about it. Because it's not just a cookbook. You gotta have people talk about their experience. That's part of it. In fact, Oregon is very, very invested in mental health first aid. Yeah. So there are some really wonderful people in Oregon doing some really cool stuff. Yeah. So I think it's going to be great because not everybody can spend the time um, in an eight hour course. And it's a lot, it's, it's a time commitment. So, or at eight hour, you know, sometimes we do four and four hours because that that's a lot of, you know, it's just a lot of intensity, but having that online option allows you to be more at your own pace as well, which I think is going to be great. I want to go back to something you said about when thinking about what the context of this pandemic uh -huh. is doing for mental health as a, like, I think you use the term uh, mass trauma event. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. But, but also having these, there's this theme I'm starting to see as I'm trying to understand mm -hmm. disasters more of when the normal networks mm -hmm. people rely on are disrupted, it yep. can leave certain people who are really reliant on that for maintaining their sustainability. It can leave people really in a not great place when right. those, those things are disrupted. So I have a friend who, who's in recovery and they mm -hmm. 
had just triggered by this isolation had Mm -hmm. all their their normal you know routines cut off and that sent them back yeah is yeah not a good time well it's it's hard because you know the more you learn about trauma the more you realize how it really is probably the most critical risk factor for somebody developed to develop a mental health a mental illness in the first place so it's really not what's wrong with you it's what's happened to you and for me personally i think the two things that you know that happen with trauma it's something that is distressing but it's something you have no control over and you know all of us a lot of us can go through tough stuff in our lives if we have a sense of control and you know a lot of us can go through uncontrollable things we don't have a lot of control over if we feel okay you know it's got it's going to have a positive outcome somewhere you know it's a positive thing and when both of those happen when your ability to handle stuff and the fact that it's really distressing is taken away from you um that's when it can really get bad i mean so i think part of it is um number one understanding that trauma does happen you know, I think we don't, with, with somebody who's in recovery or somebody who's dealing with some stressors, because they're not that visible, sometimes we tend not to notice them. You know, if you were coming up, going up the stairs and somebody in front of you had crutches, you would be yelling at them to move so you, can get, you could get there. You know, oh, get out of the way or move, will you please? But when somebody's going through a hard time, it's like, oh, come on, you know get a hold of yourself or, you know, you know, get over it or la la la. And, and I think that is not helpful. It's, you know, we don't, if somebody's walking around with a cast, we're not asking them to run a marathon. And if somebody's dealing with the symptoms of mental illness, yep, uh, this kind of situation right now is like running a marathon. So if you're gonna, you know, it, it's, so part of it is, understanding, I mean, again, as a non-clinician, I'm just, you know, another human being, is that with traumas, I think it is that sense of, if I can either get, achieve a little control over something in my life, at least that's going to help me deal with it. Or if I can find something that's not distressing about this experience, that may help me too. So I think that when, again, if, if you've got someone who is going through the hard time, and I'm, I, I wish your friend very well. You know, part of it is, yeah, it's gonna suck. Sometimes you have to have somebody acknowledge to you, yeah, that must be really hard right now. Wow, that sucks. So it's not that person's fault that they're going through a hard time. You know, why wouldn't you go through that? Of course you would. You know, um, and so sometimes people who are, again, dealing with addiction or other types of issues are feeling a lot of shame anyway. So part of it is like, yeah, sure. Yeah, it does suck. And to sit there with somebody while it sucks and say, I'm here with you. you know, if you think of anybody in, your, anybody in their life who've ever has gone through a hard time, whatever it is, and you have people saying, oh, everything's going to be fine someday. Uh, I can guarantee you that was not helpful. <laughs> it just isn't. It's like, thanks very much. I still feel like crap right now. So somebody say, yeah, it's crap. I'm here with you. Um, you're not alone. And I think that's another thing for this pandemic because it is just making people just physically very lonely. 
So saying, hey, yeah, look, at you're not alone. I'm here for you. That is probably one of the best things you can do. You can't make it all better, but you can be there. I don't know. Does that help? I'd wave a wand if I could, but I can't. (laughs) This is a bit um, off the wall. Does domestic violence, like how is that? fit into all this yeah yeah there are you know again it's not we're not diagnosing anything so we're we're, but we're understanding that you know you've got to make sure that you're safe and also domestic violence can be you know a lot of it is okay i'm gonna i'm trying to think and talk at the same time which can be a problem but when you think about destructive behaviors whatever aggression violence, whatever we, whether it's domestic or wherever. Um, Number one, if I have a mental illness, it does not inherently mean that I am violent. Okay. So if I've, if I've got someone in my life who I'm living with in quarantine, who's got a mental illness, sometimes some people can say, oh, I'm, you know, what if that quote person goes off the deep end, unquote, look at person who's living with a mental illness is not going to be, is, is not likely to be, um, is no more likely to be violent than anybody else, in fact, is usually more likely to be a victim. That being said, what we learn in mental health first aid is people who may tend to be more violent are usually under the influence of something. So being under the influence of something, what happens to what, you know, and again, since alcohol is our drug of choice in this country, what we talk about is alcohol, you know, your inhibitions are removed usually. Alcohol removes your inhibitions. It can make you much more likely to react. Uh, if you're going to be emotional, if you're going to be angry, that can, that kind of takes the brakes off. So a lot of times you'll find out that there's there's a relationship with alcohol use, drug use, and you know I think that that bec- and also stressors. Sometimes that's how people react to stress. So sure, a real concern everybody's got is especially with the fact that people don't necessarily have the access to shelters they necessarily can't get out and see their friends and family. Sure, that risk has gone up. So that's another thing to be aware. You know, if you're you're talking to somebody and you're noticing that it sounds like their partner or whoever they're living with may be using more, or maybe they themselves may be using or drinking more, or they may sound more distressed or whatever, it never hurts to say, hey, are you okay? And the other thing that mental health first aid helps people do is develop a list of resources in their own community. So if it was a friend of mine, I might say, hey, you know, let's have a chat about this. And, you know, here's some people, here's a phone number here in Vermont that you can call. Or if you want, we can, you know, maybe get on the phone to the call together. That's the other thing about doing this is I feel a little more empowered here in my community to know if there's a friend or family who's going through a hard time, I also know kind of who to call. Mm. Yeah. So that's, that's helping with that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, it's, it's an issue. It is an issue. Yeah. It's, it's not easy, but you know, there's way we, there's ways we can support people. I guess that's, that's the thing. And we can support ourselves too. Is there anything else you want to touch on or share how you found this group or yeah. Any other points that sure. to hit? Yeah. I'm, um, well, I was, I, I, but I do, mental health consulting anyway. And so this, I remember it was in 2008, I got a call from their, their chief of 
uh, their COO at the National Council for Behavioral Health, which is a trade organization initially of community mental health centers around the country. So they do lobbying and they do advocacy and outreach work. But, but, if, but anyway, this program, I get a call saying, you know, there's this program, we're going to join up with the states of Missouri and Maryland to bring this mental health for state program to the United States. We have no idea what's gonna happen with it. Um, would you be willing to be a national trainer and teach people the curriculum how to be a trainer? And I, I was like, look, I've never trained anybody in my life. And she's, oh, you'll be fine. So that, that's what it, it started there. And um, we had about, oh, I think we, we trained about maybe a thousand people that first year to get things going. And then um, it hit, you know, it, it really, it went live at the end of 2009. And then unfortunately, because of, we had the shooting of Congressman Giffords down in Arizona and the state of Arizona reacted, this is how we're gonna, we're gonna use mental health first aid to help with that. And I mentioned with our young people and various and sundry things. So it took about uh, eight years for it to get to a million people. So like 2017, 2018, I think it was up to a million people and it's doubled in the past three years. So the growth has become exponential. I never ever thought it would be like this. And I think what we're doing is we're hitting something and I think this is the most important and I mentioned this before, this belongs to everybody. You don't have to be an expert. You can just be a person. And yes, you're going to learn. You might be a doctor. You might be a social worker. You might be a person who lives with this stuff. Everybody's got their own, their own truth, but everybody's got their own learning curve. So you can learn how to help somebody with this. And, you know, you don't have to worry about running around with a, you know, a, a, a certificate or a whatever. You're just a person helping somebody out. Australia has been amazing with it. They, they've, I forget what percentage of their population, I think it's like, is it 5% of their population is trained in it? In Australia, if you sign up for a first aid class, you get mental health first aid class. You get mental health first aid is part of the package. Wow. You know, it, again, it's, it's, it's a different thing because if you learn first aid, you learn how to bandage somebody or do chest compressions. This is more, understanding how to relate to somebody and it's hard to test somebody for it. So it's really more of just a, it's a, it's an education thing. If you can use it, great. If you can't, you just, you've learned something. So we're not expecting people to run out and save the world. We say you get a certificate to the end of this thing. You, you get it. You don't get a cape. So don't feel you have to go out and save the world. You just be a better friend to somebody. Mm. Yeah. But it's very cool. It's very cool. I'm I'm ready to take the training. <laughs> we'll get you out there. <laughs> yeah. We'll get you out there. And and I think the other thing that's really kind of interesting is how different communities have, have really taken this on. I mentioned police officers, the what is it, International Association of Chiefs of Police, I, you know, all these things. They want every single officer in the United States in the next 10 years to know this stuff. Um you know, that's going to be interesting. I mean, that's, that's a lot. Um, Native, different, different indigenous First Nations around the country have been into it. You go to Canada, really, really big involvement up there. Um, older people like me, uh, really getting into, you realize that, that, you know, we're talking about our youth and our teens, but we also have a program for people who are older. 
and you're dealing with a friend or family member who might be dealing with things related to aging, that's going to be huge. So I, you know, it's, it's one of those things that empowers us as a public health person. I think it's the best in, intervention I've ever seen because it empowers real people to help other real people. And, you know, what else do you want? It's all good. <laughs> if we all did one thing to prepare, if everyone listening did one th- thing, and I guess maybe it would be take the training, but <laughs> well, that, that would, that's a little self-serving, but yeah, um, you know, I've been thinking about that. And uh, the other, the other thing, which is completely off base, but um, as I've been looking about what, what I, I'm being called to do, I took a training as an end of life doula from the University of Vermont Medical School. That's an online course. And it was, that's another, that's another whole conversation. But one of the things that we really, they really struck home was the need for us to be compassionate to ourselves mm-hmm. and to other people. Like, you know, we learn about, oh, empathy, empathy is the big thing. And, you know, I want to walk in your shoes and I want to do that. But, you know, the reality is we can't, you know, everybody goes through their own stuff, their own way. And I think in the middle of, of a, any kind of a, a stressful situation, we tend to judge ourselves harshly and judge other people harshly and say, look, I'm doing the best I can. And other people are doing the best they can. And I may not necessarily agree with what you're doing or necessarily approve of what you're doing, but I honor who you are. And I'm just trying to do that. And if, if I can just, get past my own stuff and do that for other people and also do that for me. I think that helps us get through, especially a situation like this, that is, you know, it's going to go on for a while and it's going to wear us down if we don't give ourselves just a little slack and a little, a little love. So that's be compassionate. That's probably the best thing I can think of right now. That was Liz Reardon, a trainer with mental health first aid. Check out the Seismic Airways website at seismicairways.com and follow us on social media. We're at Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Seismic Airways. The special thanks shout out for this episode goes to Marie Hamilton. Seismic Airways is based in Portland, Oregon on traditional and ancestral homelands of the Multnomah, Cliflamet, Clackamas, Tumwater, Walala Bands of the Chinook, the Tualatin Kalapoya, and many other indigenous nations of the Columbia River. In acknowledging these communities, we honor their sacrifices forced upon them, their legacy, their lives, and their descendants. Our team is Adrian Brown, Ariel Kane, Chad Tucker, Joseph Myers, Sarah Mayer. I'm your host, Sabina Roan, and that's it for this episode of Seismic Airwaves. Until next time, take care.